I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight, the concluding episode of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, written and presented by the distinguished Canadian writer and social thinker Jean Vanier. The Massey Lectures are co-sponsored by CBC Radio and Massey College of the University of Toronto. Lecturers are invited to give a series of five talks on contemporary issues for a wide general audience. Since the lectures began in 1961, Massey lecturers have included such prominent thinkers as Claude Lévi-Strauss, Carlos Fuentes, Doris Lessing, Noam Chomsky and Northrop Frye. The book of the 1995 Massey Lectures, The Unconscious Civilization by John Ralston Saul, won the Governor-General's Prize for Nonfiction. This year's Massey lecturer, Jean Vanier, is the founder of L'Arche, the international organization famed for its innovative methods of working with mentally handicapped people. Jean Vanier is also a prolific writer, and in his many books he's developed the idea of what it means to be a good individual and what it means to live in harmony with the world and with God. In this year's Massey Lectures, Jean Vanier discusses the necessity of conceiving a new vision of humanity, a society in which the gifts of all, particularly those of the weak and the powerless, are a common heritage of equal value. To record these lectures, we travel to Jean Vanier's home in Trolley-Broy in the north of France, where he established the very first Lache community over 30 years ago. Because the lectures were recorded on location, from time to time you'll hear the sounds of real life, including birds and the occasional car. In the four previous episodes, Jean Vanier spoke of human loneliness as the place from which we begin the search for the new, of the importance of a sense of belonging in our idea of self and of society, of the fears which block our path, and of the necessity of accepting who we are as we walk the road to freedom. Tonight on Ideas, Forgiveness, the concluding episode of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures. And here's Jean Vanier. In Greek, the word forgiveness is asphesis, which means to liberate, to release from bondage. It means the remission of debt, guilt and punishment. It is the word which is used when the prison door is opened and the prisoner can go free. We human beings are called to become free, to give freedom to others, to nurture life and to look for the worth and beauty in each and every one of us, to make of our world a beautiful garden where each person, each society can create a harvest of flowers and fruits and so prepare the seeds of peace for tomorrow. In the last lecture, I talked about becoming free of the inner compulsions towards success, the drive to be loved and fear of rejection. When these compulsions and cravings govern our behavior and incite us not to seek justice and freedom for others, but to seek our own fulfillment by any possible just or unjust means, we're not free. In this lecture, I want to talk about finding freedom from those inner hurts that can govern our behavior and make us act inhumanly towards others. These hurts can be active hurts, 
Some of us carry a legacy of physical abuse. Other wounds on the road of life are more passive. At certain times, we have all felt unappreciated and rejected. In either case, our needs have been ignored by those who might have helped, but who have passed us by. Our hurts leave open wounds in the heart, pushed down and covered over in the secret recesses of our being. These many and different remembered hurts are at the origin of the barriers which we create. These barriers and the wounds they cover up prevent healthy belonging because they prevent communication and openness. In order to become men and women who are truly free, which is to be most human, these barriers have to be lowered. Forgiveness is this process of lowering the barriers. It is a process by which we are seeking to love those who have hurt us. This is the final stage in inner liberation. We react to hurts in different ways. We can be driven to hurt those who have hurt us, to speak evil of those who have spoken evil of us, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There are other ways of dealing with hurts. Some of us let the hurt fester inside, creating an attitude of continual dis-ease and discontent with everything and everyone. The hurt that we hide can even turn into feelings of self-deprecation, as if we deserve the hurt, because we have become convinced that we are of no value. There are two forms of guilt, psychological guilt and moral guilt. The first is induced in us by others, those who have made us feel that we are without value. Psychologists frequently call this form of guilt shame in order to distinguish it clearly from the second form of guilt, the one we induce in ourselves, that which we feel after having done something wrong. Psychological guilt is not the consequence of having hurt someone or of committing a crime. It is the feeling that can overwhelm us when we feel rejected as individuals. Many years ago, John Paul came to Lash from a psychiatric hospital. At one point, he became quite sick and started to have hallucinations. He moved out of reality and began to live in another world, a situation that was rather frightening for him as well as for all of us. All those who were involved with his care had a meeting with Errol Franco, our psychiatrist at the time. We wanted to understand what had provoked the crisis and how to help John Paul find himself again and rediscover reality. I still remember Dr. Franco's words. I believe John Paul feels guilty of existing. He reminded us that because of his handicap, this young man had been rejected by his parents, then by his grandparents, and again by two unsuccessful family placements. He eventually ended up in a psychiatric hospital before coming to Lash. Never in his life had he been accepted or loved just as he was. He had never felt bonded to anyone. He had always been seen as a nuisance. If we are not loved, then we feel unlovable. This is psychological guilt, which touches us in our personhood. Moral guilt and psychological guilt feed into each other. If we feel that we are of no worth, it is because we've been told in one way or another that this is so, and then we will act accordingly. We will hurt others precisely because we know we are of no worth. 
Many of the people with mental handicaps in Lash come filled with this psychological guilt. They are convinced that they are no good and that they can do no good. The whole purpose of Lash communities is to transform their broken, negative self-image into a positive one. It is to help them move from a desire to die to a desire to live, from self-hatred to a love of self. These feelings of worthlessness are induced not only in people with mental handicaps, but in all of us as children at any time when we feel rejected. Thus in childhood the shadow side of our being develops within us, and these feelings surface during moments of depression. To be depressed is to be flooded by feelings which paralyze us and prevent us from getting on with our lives. This psychological guilt is also at the root of all feelings of lack of trust in self. Not just a lack of trust in being able to do something which demands experience and competence, but a lack of trust in one's capacity to love and to be loved in return. As I listen to people, I discover how many of us are weighed down by guilt, a guilt which takes many forms. Mothers and fathers feel guilty because they're imperfect parents to their children. Husbands and wives feel guilty because they do not know how to love and care for their partner. Perhaps we all feel guilty because we are not quite who we wanted to become. To that extent, all of us are disappointed in ourselves. The question then is how to free ourselves from the weight of guilt how to rediscover the sense of trust that tells us we can open up to others and do something beautiful with our lives. When we can do this, it frees others too, for if we are disappointing ourselves, it is certain that we are also disappointing others. How can a mother and child, husband and wife, liberate one another from the feelings that prevent them from living fully? How can there be an encounter between them that releases a new energy, transforming their hearts? This is the energy the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber refers to in his book, I and Thou, when he speaks of two people who truly meet together and reveal themselves to each other. In my lecture on loneliness, I spoke about the love which transforms people and which transformed Claudia a young woman with severe handicaps in the Lash community in Honduras. Love that reveals, understands, empowers and celebrates. Love that transforms the desire to die into a desire to live. This love liberates us from the tentacles of psychological guilt. It is a love that flows from someone who believes in us and wants us to live. But we have to open up the doors of our hearts to receive this love. We can block it, refuse to believe in it, or not want it at all. Sometimes the desire to die can be too powerful. Here I think we touch the secret of our inner freedom. We can either welcome or refuse this transforming love. To forgive is to offer this love that liberates us from the powers of guilt. Forgiveness is the supreme gift, the greatest of gifts, because it is a gift of liberation from all the hurts of the past 
hurts that prevent us from living fully and loving others. Let us look at the different types of hurts. First of all, there are personal hurts, one individual making another suffer. A young university student came to see me. From the way she spoke about men, I sensed a lot of pain in her. I asked her to tell me about her relationship with her father. She glared at me. I hate him. I asked her to tell me more. She told me that her father was a philosophy teacher in a Christian school where he was greatly loved and respected. When he came home, however, he locked himself up in his room. He never eats with us, she said. He never speaks to me. I hate him. It's not easy for a young woman to feel rejected and slighted by a father who should encourage and confirm her. The attitude of this young woman's father made her feel she was worthless. His rejection fed into a general sense of rejection she was carrying and created deep tension, anger and revolt in her. It was also conditioning all her relationships with men. This young woman needed to be liberated from the hatred that was governing her life. It was important for her to enter into a process of understanding her father, a process that might eventually lead to forgiveness. When she begins to understand the person who has hurt her and why he acted in that way, then she'll be on the road to forgiveness. But this forgiveness can only be complete if her father is willing to reflect on his own behavior, if he realizes how much she has hurt his daughter and then asks her for this gift of forgiveness. Only then could a total liberation take place. Sometimes it's not so much a question of understanding, but of recognizing that there are terrible blockages in a person, blockages that can lead to a refusal to admit guilt. A young woman had been in prison for a number of years because of a man who gave false evidence against her. In prison, she experienced a spiritual transformation through the help of a nun who was also the prison chaplain. One day, the nun brought up the question of forgiveness for this man who had brought so much evil on her. No, she replied, I could never forgive him. He has hurt me too much. But I do pray each day that God may forgive him. This woman could not forgive until her persecutor repented and asked for the gift of forgiveness. But she also showed that she did not want to be controlled by her hatred for him. She recognized the evil hindrances in him that could only be lifted by a superior power. In some cases, it seems easier for victims to move towards this inner liberation than for the oppressor to admit guilt and to ask for forgiveness. In other cases, the hurt can be so deep in the victim that complete liberation is a very long and painful process. Think of the Jews who survived the extermination camps or the Tutsis and Hutus who have lived through the massacres in Rwanda. Most of us don't have to deal with hatred like those two women, the university student and the woman in jail. But we all have sharp likes and dislikes. These we discover as we live with others, in family, at work, in a community, or in other groups. 
We are attracted to some people, we reject others. We hand out praise and condemnation with equal ease. And even if we do not praise or condemn, we do place people in easy categories. Those who belong to another church or political party, or who profess other values, are quickly given a label. Those who belong to a different race or social class are also assigned a place in the order of the world as we see it. We like to see ourselves as an elite at the top of a pyramid. We look down on those who are different. We do not see them as our brothers and sisters in humanity. We may not always hate others, but we are very quick to categorize them. As humans, we put up barriers with great ease. But not all of our dislikes about people are groundless. There are those who belittle us. There are others who awaken latent fears. Still others make us feel anxious and uneasy. There are those who want to possess us, so we feel constrained in their presence. All of these various dislikes have one thing in common. They spring from a perception of a certain danger to our sense of self. Likes and dislikes are motivated by our own natural needs and fears. We are attracted to those who seem to affirm and encourage us in our ways, who love and admire us. We reject those who do not affirm or encourage us, but who judge and condemn. We may not be imprisoned in anything as strong as hate, but our likes and dislikes create equally high walls. Behind them we can act as if others do not exist, or as if they do not belong to our common humanity. To be truly liberated, we too have to make an effort to communicate with those we dislike and to try to understand and accept them as they are, to live an experience of mutual humanity with them. And then there are the hatreds that communities generate in each other. In her book, My First White Friend, Confessions on Race, Love and Forgiveness, the American writer Patricia Raybon writes about how the oppression she felt in the United States had taught her to hate white people. She writes, I hated them because they have lynched and lied and jailed and poisoned and neglected and discarded and excluded and exploited countless cultures and communities with such blatant intent or indifference as to humanly defy belief or understanding. She goes on to say that she came to recognize that her hatred, no matter how legitimate and understandable, was eating away her identity and self-respect. It was blinding her to the gestures of friendship offered to her by a white girl in high school. She discovered that instead of waiting for whites to seek forgiveness for the injustices they had done, she needed to ask for forgiveness for the hatred in her heart and for her inability to see a white person as a person and not just as part of a race of oppressors. Hurt can be so painful in victims that they are obliged to create thick walls in order to protect themselves from even more pain. When the time comes, however, for liberation, when those who previously were victims become the new masters, these thick walls mean that the new masters can become, like the old masters, 
defensive and aggressive all at the same time. Some of the oppressed, instead of acknowledging their hatred of the oppressor and their desire for revenge, get stuck in feelings of inferiority. Oppression has penetrated into their own hearts. Convinced that they are inferior, they remain unable to react or to struggle for their rights, and so they begin to oppress themselves. They become their own oppressors. In order to break the chain of violence and oppression that has always ruled and which continues to rule in our world, oppressed people have to find liberation from these two attitudes, hatred towards others and hatred towards themselves. Only in this way, I believe, can the oppressed of the world find inner freedom and peace of heart. The love of one's enemy is at the heart of the Christian message. Jesus says forcefully, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, speak well of those who speak badly of you, pray for those who abuse you. The Dalai Lama points out the same truth in Buddhism. The sacred text known as the Bodhisattva, he tells us, affirms the importance of acquiring the right attitude towards your enemy. If you know how to develop a just attitude, your enemies become your spiritual masters because their presence gives you an opportunity to grow in tolerance, patience and understanding. As you acquire more patience and tolerance, it will be easier to develop your capacity for compassion and thanks to that, your altruism. In the Quran, forgiveness of enemies is also important. It may be that Allah will grant love and friendship between you and those whom ye now hold as enemies. For Allah has power over all things, and Allah is oft forgiving, most merciful. Because enemy is such a strong term, it's easy for us to deny that we have enemies. But in the sense in which Christ, the Dalai Lama and Muhammad are speaking of enemies, they refer to something which can be much simpler, much closer to home, in the sense in which the enemy is that person who stands in the way of your freedom, your dignity and capacity to grow and to love. That is your enemy. A woman spoke to me about her husband. He is happy when I look after the house and children. He is happy when I cook good food and wash his clothes. He uses me sexually, but he never listens to me or treats me like a person, asking me for my opinion or advice. A lot of anger is coming up in me, and I do not know what to do with it all. Her husband was becoming her enemy because he was crushing her dignity and her sense of self-worth. Dislike can grow to annoyance. Annoyance can blossom into anger. Anger can turn to hatred. We have to be careful not to let the seeds of our dislike grow and multiply. Perhaps we all have to see that the words of Jesus and of other spiritual masters asking us to love our enemies apply even to those mildest of negative feelings, our dislikes. To become truly free, to work for unity and peace, we have to work at all these relationships that cause us pain and dis-ease.
This woman's husband obviously needed to change. But didn't she too need to change? For that woman to forgive did not mean accepting a controlling, oppressive husband. It meant that she had to become more fully herself, standing up and affirming her own selfhood, and then be ready to accept the consequences. To love one's enemy is not just a spiritual reality, but something essentially human. All of us who think about peace or merely about the simple act of being human and of the process of growing towards maturity must take this call to love our enemies seriously. This is a call to change, to no longer be controlled by our hurts and fears, but to enter instead into a relationship with those whom we dislike. But to love those we dislike or even hate seems impossible. How can we love our enemies? Will they not just eat us up if we appear weak and vulnerable before them? Life urges us forward to live. How can we be open to someone who wants to curb our lives and our freedom? Life protects itself from death. If we see a stone hurtling towards us, don't we instinctively protect ourselves? How can we be open to someone whom we think wants to hurt us physically or psychologically? Don't we need to protect ourselves when we are confronted by someone who consciously or unconsciously wants to prevent us in some way from blossoming forth and radiating life? I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Tonight you're listening to the fifth and final episode of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, presented by the distinguished writer and social thinker Jean Vanier. Forgiveness begins as we become aware of our fears and barriers. All our refusals to communicate with others and to be open to them enclose us in a prison. How to move from accusation, no matter how legitimate it may be, to openness and acceptance, and even a desire to see others liberated from their fears and selfishness. The process begins as we become aware of the walls within us, built on fear and on an unconscious anger, and as we become aware also of how our openness towards those we call friends can be a protection from anguish and loneliness. This unveiling of our brokenness, fears and faults does not come easily, precisely because it can enhance feelings of lack of value in each one of us. Such a process of uncovering our weakness can push us down further into a lack of self-confidence. Instead of helping us to grow in love and forgiveness and openness, such a process can close us up in subtle forms of depression and inertia. Where to find this inner force, stronger than our fears and barriers, which will liberate us from anger and dislikes and open us up to others, to those who have hurt us. I believe that the forces of life and the desires for communion are greater than the forces of death and hatred. At some moment in each of our lives, there is an event that calls us to freedom and openness. At that point of epiphany, 
We want to get out of the hole of depression and anger. We realize that we are imprisoned in ourselves or in our group, finding it difficult to relate to others. A few years ago, Fred, a man in prison, wrote to me. He told me how, as a lawyer and married man, he had committed a serious crime and had gone to jail. One day he became violent with other inmates and ended up in solitary confinement. Aware that he had lost everything, his family, his work, his mobility, as well as his dignity and self-respect, he wanted to die. But suddenly there rose up in him what he called in his letter tiny stars of love, an urge to find himself and to rediscover love. It was a moment of grace. For many of us, it is only when we touch the rock bottom of the pit of anguish, when all seems lost, that this tiny light of hope begins to shine. We become aware not only of all the darkness in ourselves, but also of the light of hope within. At that moment, an ascension begins. To open up to others implies not only an awareness of our own fears, darkness and brokenness, but also the presence of a light and a love and an energy which will give us the desire to move forward to openness, to not let ourselves be controlled by the darkness. The birth of this desire for liberation is a blessed moment, a moment of grace. It can happen as we meet those who are truly free and who sing their freedom. They reveal to us that freedom is possible and that it brings with it a blossoming of the heart in peace and in joy. This desire for liberation may happen when we meet someone who loves and trusts us just as we are and who sees through our fears and inhibitions all that is possible in us. Love calls us forth and attracts like a magnet new and deep energies within. This desire for liberation can come through dreams, moments of inner quietness or times when we live an experience of the presence of God loving us just as we are. In these blessed moments, a consciousness of who we are rises up. We become aware of our importance, our blessedness, deeper than all the hurts that have governed our lives. For an instant, we are no longer controlled by fear, anger, indifference, vengeance and the feelings of despair and unworthiness. A little light is born, a desire to be. Hope returns to our lives. In the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision where he saw a whole valley filled with dead bones. These bones represented the people of Israel who were saying, our bones are dry, we have no hope, all is over for us. Then in the name of God, Ezekiel spoke to them and called them forth. Now I am going to open your graves. I will bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will live. There are blessed moments when we feel called to rise up from the dirt and despair of our lives and to become more fully alive. With the birth of a desire to find liberation, I would suggest that there are various principles underlying forgiveness in the move towards reconciliation. To me, there are three basic principles 
underlying forgiveness. First, there can be no forgiveness of ourselves or of others unless we believe that we are all part of a common humanity. What this means in practical terms is that no one individual, no one group is superior to others. To say that we are all equally important seems like such a redundancy, and yet how often do any of us act as if this were true? How often has history demonstrated this human truth that we are all equal? Not often. So it needs to be said again and again. We may be different in race, culture, religion and capacities, but we are all the same, with vulnerable hearts, the need to love and be loved, to grow, to develop our capacities and to find our place in the world. We all need to find ourselves of value. We are all the same because throughout the development of our lives, we have, every one of us, been hurt in some way or another. Fears have been implanted in us. We have difficulty relating with others. There is a certain chaos of anguish and violence within us all. In order to enter the path of forgiveness, we have to lose our feelings of both superiority and inferiority. Each of us has hurt another. Each of us has been hurt. And so we must own and take responsibility of our lives as well as of the future. We are all called to be men and women who stand up and take our place freely in the world. Second, to forgive means to believe that each of us can evolve and change, that human redemption is possible. How often we lock people up in ready-made judgments. He's a thief. She is handicapped. He is schizophrenic. Perhaps this one did steal something. Perhaps that one is disabled. But they are more than this. They are people who, if loved, helped and trusted, can recognize their faults and their brokenness and can grow in humanity, in inner freedom to do beautiful things. Third, to forgive means to yearn for unity and peace. Unity is the ultimate treasure for humanity. It is the place where all together, in the garden of humanity, each one of us can grow, bear fruit and give life. That is what we all yearn for. Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son to illustrate this. A young man asks his father for his share of the inheritance, which he then proceeds to squander. Humbled and penniless, he returns to throw himself on his father's mercy. In the parable, when the father sees his disheveled son coming back to him, thin, dirty and unshaven, he rushes out and kisses him. No judgment. No disagreeable remarks, not even, I forgive you. What the father yearned for was to be with his son again, to live a communion of hearts with him. His desire to be with his son was far greater than any hurts he may have suffered. When someone loves and loves deeply, forgiveness is evident. A lover wants to be with the loved one, that's all. If we love and want all people to be free to bear fruit, we will be a people of forgiveness. We will no longer be governed by our inner hurts 
or need to prove our worth. We will yearn for the growth of all people in unity. To be a peacemaker and to work for unity is a struggle. It's not easy to accept forgiveness or to forgive. At the heart of the process of forgiveness is the birth of the desire to be liberated from negative passions, from sharp dislikes and hatreds. This is a desire that starts us on the road to true forgiveness. And having proposed a series of three principles regarding forgiveness, let me now propose four steps. The first step is the refusal of revenge. No longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The second step is the genuine, heartfelt hope that the oppressor be liberated. The victim cannot change the heart of stone still filled with fear and hate, but one may hope and pray that one day the heart of stone may become a heart of flesh. The third step is the desire to understand the oppressor, how and why their indifference or hardness of heart have developed and how they might be liberated. The fourth step is patience. It takes time to be freed from hatred. It takes time for an oppressor to evolve and to change. Forgiveness is a bilateral affair, the coming together of the oppressed and the oppressor, each one accepting the other, each acknowledging their fears, repressions and hatreds, each accepting that the path of mutual love is the only way out of a world of conflict. It is difficult, however, for the oppressor to admit guilt. Let us try to understand their difficulty. It might help us all to exercise authority with greater sensitivity and to walk the road of forgiveness. Power has direction. By its nature, it is always exercised downwards, towards the weak. One manifestation of power in the family, for example, is the authority of parents over their children. But power is quickly equated with what is right. Don't most parents feel that they know what is best for their children? Don't all those in positions of power think that they know what is right? It is as if the exercise of power gives people a sense of being. To criticize those in authority generally seems to press on the sensitive nerve of identity. Those in authority who doubt or waver in their decisions do not inspire confidence. So there is a paradox in the exercise of authority. In many ways, the mighty feel that they are in the image of the almighty, that they should not be questioned, only obeyed. Yet we're also broken, turned in on ourselves, self-centered. So few of us have the necessary maturity and wisdom to exercise authority in a loving and freeing way through what we might call servant leadership, helping people to find trust in themselves and to grow in freedom. It is difficult for those with power to allow themselves to be governed by a superior law of love. It is equally difficult for those who have power to admit that they have hurt those who are weaker. As humans, we have the facility of pushing all the wrongs we have committed into the secret recesses of our being. We develop sophisticated techniques 
to silence the conscience and erase every trace of remorse. Psychologists have described this ability to render ourselves numb. Freud called it a protective shield that we are able to create around all kinds of threatening behavior. Geiko Müller-Fadenholz, a German theologian who has worked with the World Council of Churches, wrote a remarkable book, The Art of Forgiveness. In it, he says that people generally manage to forget the wrongs they have done. There can be no forgiveness, he says, where perpetrators, whether individuals or collective, lack the courage to disarm themselves in front of the victims. This is a painful and demanding act. When those who have created a sense of self-worth and personal identity through the exercise of power finally reveal the wrongs they have committed, forswear the evil in themselves, and ask their victim for forgiveness, then they are renouncing the supremacy that the exercise of power presumes and accepting the loss of their self-esteem. It is as if they had become naked and vulnerable, but as they break through the protective shield which gave them a sense of self-worth, anguish and a feeling of inner death can rise up. That is why the emotions can be so great when oppressor and oppressed are reconciled. For true reconciliation, in most cases, we need a force that transcends both oppressed and oppressor. Geiko Müller-Farenholz writes, In the last resort, humans cannot define what constitutes their humanity. It transcends them. As we work for forgiveness, we are called to reflect that as human beings, each of us is created in the image of God, the most merciful. This is our calling, our mission, to become mirrors of mercy. We all tend to wear masks, the mask of superiority or of inferiority, the mask of worthiness or of victim. It is not easy to let our masks come off and to discover inside of ourselves the little child yearning for love yet fearful of being hurt. Forgiveness, however, implies the removal of these masks, an acceptance of who we really are, that we have been hurt and that we have hurt others. Forgiveness also implies an acceptance of our true value. The loss of self-image, if it is an image of perfection or superiority, can bring anguish and inner pain. We can only accept this pain if we discover beneath all the masks, our true self, and realize that if we are broken, then we are also more beautiful than we ever dared to suspect. When we realize our brokenness, we do not have to fall into depression. When we see our true beauty, we do not have to become proud as peacocks. Seeing our own brokenness and beauty allows us to recognize hidden under the brokenness, defense mechanisms, and self-centeredness of others, their beauty, their value, and their sacredness. This discovery is sometimes a leap in the dark, a blessed moment, a moment of grace, and a moment of enlightenment. As the desire grows in us to be whole and to struggle for greater wholeness in ourselves, in others, in our community, in the world, as we desire to be free in order to free others, 
a new energy is born within us. It is as if we have crossed the Red Sea from slavery to freedom. We can live the pain of loss. We can accept anguish because something new is being given to us. Jesus' invitation to love one's enemies must have appeared dangerously utopian to the Galileans. Maybe it was only when they saw him standing up to the leaders of the Jews, pursuing a courageous and dangerous course for love, for truth, for the liberation of the oppressed, that some began to understand that this was a new way to struggle for peace and to break the seemingly unending chain of human oppression. Love of enemies is to see them as individuals, perhaps caught up in a cycle of lies, fear and oppression, but individuals nonetheless, who beneath everything are sacred and precious. Their secret person is hidden behind walls of fear. To love them is to hope and to yearn that instead of living a form of self-destruction, locked up in their own pride and power, they can be liberated. If the night before he died, Jesus knelt down before his disciples, washed their feet, and called them to do the same, was it not because he knew how power can be used to crush and to enslave, rather than to empower and to free? In order to empower and free others, we need to discover this new force of love, of communion, lived in humility, and which comes from God. This vision of love seems humanly impossible. One day in 1944, in Auschwitz concentration camp, a group of men stood waiting to be executed. Suddenly a man stepped forward and volunteered to replace one of the men who had been condemned to the bunker of death. He was Father Maximilian Kolbe. We are told that the commandant was startled, but he allowed the priest to take the man's place. So Father Kolbe joined a group of men in the bunker, where he helped each one to make the final passage of death. When all had died and he was alone, the guards came and killed him too. By doing this, Father Kolbe was bearing witness that love is stronger than death. More recently, in 1996, in Algeria, the Trappist monk Christian de Cherget was murdered along with six of his brother monks. They had refused to leave their monastery in a dangerous and unprotected area in order to bear witness as a sign of the presence of God. Christian left a document with his mother, his last will, to be opened when he died. In it, he gives thanks. In this thank you, which is said for everything in my life, I certainly include you, friends of yesterday and today, and you also, friend of my final moment, who would not be aware of what you are doing. Yes, for you also I wish to say thank you, and this adieu to commend you to the God whose face I see in yours. And may we find each other happy, good thieves in paradise, if it pleases God, the Father of us both. Amen. Inchala. Supreme forgiveness is the supreme gift. 
Jesus's invitation to love our enemies is also a promise, true for Christian and non-Christian alike. What we cannot do by ourselves, we can do with this inner power of the Spirit, which transforms our hearts of stone founded on fear into hearts of flesh. Through the efficacy of the Spirit, we will receive a new power which will permit us to stand firm in love. Forgiveness, the act of loving my enemy, is not a sudden event, a rapid change of heart. Most of the time, it is a long process which begins with the desire to love those who are different or who have hurt us, to get out of our prison of likes and dislikes, hatreds and fears, and to walk to freedom and compassion. In the process of liberation, there may still be inhibitions, resentments and anger, but there is also this growing desire to be free. I believe that this desire comes from the Spirit of God within each of us, but it must be coupled with our own efforts to stop rejoicing when people talk badly of their enemies, to stop criticizing and belittling others, to hold on to our poison-spreading tongues. It might mean befriending those who befriend our enemy in order that we might begin to understand our enemy. To understand is an important part of forgiveness. If we work at it, the Spirit of God works in us. One day, resentments start to disappear. Forgiveness is to begin to love and to accept people as they are, trying to understand and appreciate all that is valuable in them, praying that what blocks them from being free may break like a dam, in order that what is most precious in them may flow forth. That is the final prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. To forgive is to break down the dividing walls of hostility that separate us, and to bring each other out of the agonies of loneliness, fear and chaos, into communion and oneness. This communion is born from mutual trust. Each of us is accepted just as we are. We are free to be ourselves in our uniqueness and beauty, free to exercise our gifts. We are no longer contained and held back by fear, prejudices or the need to prove ourselves. So the sense of belonging that is necessary for the opening of our hearts is born as we walk together, needing each other, accompanying one another. This belonging will not be closed up in feelings of superiority if we are walking towards inner freedom. It will not seek to exclude, but to include. The weak and the needy have a secret power which opens up people's hearts and leads them to compassion and mutual trust. This belonging becomes a song of gratitude for each one of us. All this, of course, takes time. But are we not all called to take this journey if we want to become more fully human and to work for peace? If each one of us today begins this journey towards forgiveness and has the courage to forgive and to be forgiven, we will no longer be governed by past hurts. Wherever we may be, in our families, our workplaces, with friends, or in places of worship or of leisure, 
we can become agents of a new land. But let us not put our sights too high. We do not have to be saviors of the world. We are simply human beings, called together, enfolded in weakness and in hope, who can change our world one heart at a time. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the fifth and final episode of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures, presented by Jean Vanier. Becoming Human is available as a book and as a set of audio cassettes. The book is published by House of Anansi and can be purchased in bookstores and by mail order from Ideas. The five audio cassettes of the programs are also available. The cost is $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes, shipping and taxes included. That's $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes. Books and cassettes can be ordered from Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6, or by phone, 416-205-6010, and email ideas at toronto.cbc.ca. Becoming Human was produced by Philip Coulter and recorded by Dave Field. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers. (laughs) ¶¶